Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Utah State University is joining the nation and state in celebrating significant voting rights anniversaries in 2020, the 150th anniversary of suffrage for Utah women, the 100th anniversary of women's suffrage in the United States, and the 55th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act. And as in, the university honors these important milestones in our history. As part of these celebrations, Utah State University is declaring this the Year of the Woman. We're going to talk about this, including some history, and bring this forward to uh, contemporary issues as well uh, with uh, Joyce Kincaid, who is Distinguished Professor of English at Utah State University. Welcome. Thank you, Tom. Good morning. Good morning to you. Kathy Farron-Bullock is Interim uh, Department Head for Journalism and uh, Communications Department. Good morning, Tom. Good morning. Uh, so I'll start with you, Joyce Kincaid. Um, the Year of the Woman, so designated, uh, Why? Well, this is really exciting, and and uh, we're out in front of some major celebrations that are going to happen statewide and nationwide. And I'm so proud of Utah State University for taking the lead in recognizing that these are remarkable anniversaries. So just Monday, August 26th, okay, was Women's Equality Day, and that was the 99th anniversary of women getting the right to vote. Mm. And remarkably, I think many people don't understand or realize that Utah women actually went to the polls 50 years in advance of that in February for, on February 14th in 1870. So it's a great bragging point for Utah that we are first in the nation to vote and uh, as kind of happens in in this history, uh, Utah women voted. Then a little bit later, that vote was taken away from them, right? Exactly. And given back. So it's 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 kind of a yo-yo effect. It is the Edmunds Tucker Act of 1887 disenfranchised Utah women, and that was about the polygamy issue. Okay, but women in the state constitution were given the vote back. And I love this statement. I believe it's Orson Whitney who said, a woman's place is in the Constitution. <laughs> so they regain the vote with statehood. Hmm. Okay. So it's it's uh, women's suffrage, 100th anniversary, 150th anniversary of suffrage for Utah women, and 55th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act, including that. Exactly. One would have hoped that the 1920 Act would have enfranchised everyone, that there would have been universal suffrage. Unfortunately, that simply didn't happen, Uh, particularly people of color, poor people were uh, prevented from voting. Uh, There were poll taxes, there were literacy tests. And so what happened in 1965 is Congress and President Johnson uh, put into place the Voting Rights Act of 1965 that was to reinforce the 15th Amendment. And so that finally closed the loop uh, on voting. But we have to remember that this was a really mixed, complex history. Uh, In Utah, for example, Native Americans living on reservations were not permitted to vote until 1957. Mm, Wow. Um, And uh, countries around the world... Uh, All countries have women's suffrage, do they? Well, only recently has the entire world got on the bandwagon in terms of women's suffrage. The only holdout at the moment is Vatican City. 
which is considered uh, a country, a nation of its own. So Saudi Arabia was the last country that we would recognize to, to give women the vote just a couple of years ago. But interestingly, even a country like Switzerland came late to the party. It was only in 1971 that Switzerland gave women the vote. And at the time, women were not allowed to have jobs without their husband's permission. But we need to remember that even in the United States in the 70s, women were still gaining important rights. They couldn't have credit cards without their husband's permission until 1974. Uh, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. So, Kathy Fern-Bullock, um vote's only part of this, right? The, yeah. The vote accelerates seeking rights for women in other areas like Owning a credit card in your own right. Right, Right, that's absolutely right. Going back into our history in in this country, Susan B. Anthony said, you know, voting is the pivotal right. Um, And as we look back over our history, um, the whole question of voting rights for women, for um, people of color and so on, um, this was often tied in with all kinds of other social justice issues, other rights Um, abolitionism, um, abolition of slavery, um, the temperance. um, effort. Um, all kinds of, of um, social movements were kind of tied in together with this question of voting rights. So it's really been part of a package with, as Susan B. Anthony said, voting as the pivotal right. Yeah. Um, I think people are aware of uh, um, the wonderful book about the, uh, the, 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 final, the final state, Tennessee, right? Yes, exactly. Uh, which I had, had the author on, on this program and it's i think it's good to remember that the his history we see it as a fait accompli right but uh boy that history backstabbing and backroom deals and uh you, you know the 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 amendment hanging by by a thread absolutely absolutely and it came down to one vote actually yeah. and and Kathy could tell this story as as well as i can uh and Elaine Weiss's book i mean even though we know that the 19th Amendment passed, okay? Elaine Weiss's book reads so well, The Woman's Hour. It's like a drama every moment there in the battle between the suffrage, pro-suffrage, and anti-suffrage. And uh, I believe in your interview you talked about the red roses. So if you were against suffrage, the men in the legislature wore a red rose boutonniere. And those for suffrage wore a yellow rose. Well, the vote came down in the House of Representatives to, to one person, Harry Byrne. He was the youngest legislator elected in Tennessee, and he had his red rose on his lapel. And on the vote, day of the vote, he pulls out a letter from his mother, and the mother says, and, and Kathy, can you, you quote this? Oh, I'm not sure I can quote the whole thing, but the mother is, is basically saying, you know, pay attention to your mother, vote for suffrage. Um, and there was another line um, drawing on um, Mrs. Cat, help her chase away the rats, something along those put lines. Put the rat in ratification. Oh, that's right. <laughs> but she says, be a good vote, boy. Be a good boy and <laughs> vote for the women. And at the last minute, he changes his vote mm. and he votes. He had to run upstairs and hide in the attic <laughs> after he voted because the people who thought he was on their side um, were very angry with him. But the next day, he said, you know, upon reflection, women have the right to the vote. And a good son always follows his mother's advice. <laughs> and so thank you, Mrs. Byrne. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, uh, just amazing. Um, but the, the fight went on, right? 
It sure did. Um, yes, it it went on. Um, there were there were all kinds of factions all through the the suffrage movements, um, both with men and with women. Um, and there were women who were actually working against the right to vote, um, as well as the men who were working against the right to vote. So the whole thing really went on for a couple of centuries, if you look back into the history. Um, there was a woman um, way back in the mid-1600s in the, in the Maryland colony who asked for the right to vote as a property holder and was denied, and then we, we move it up, and we've got Abigail Adams asking um, to, for her husband to make sure that women got the right to vote, and we move it up through into the late 1800s and, and into the, the 1900s, and we take it up to today. We're still dealing with all kinds of voting rights issues today. Um, with um, people not having access to polling places, with questions over gerrymandering. Um, so it's, yeah, it's been something that's been going on, and it does continue today. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fight continues. I guess that's a reason for Year of the Woman. A- absolutely. And, but, you know, a, a really important theme of the Year of the Woman is to remember that we got the vote and not take it for granted. Mm. And it's fairly, when you think about it, relatively recent, even in the United States. Yes, if you're talking just 100 years ago and then you're talking the Voting Rights Act of the 1960s, we're talking something that was relatively recent. Um, And it's a right that we need to be sure we're continuing to exercise, right, not take it for granted. Do do you see, I guess in the case, young women taking this for granted? Or young men for that, you know, young people? I think... Uh, a lot of people simply don't know that history, mm-hmm. you know, even though we've, we have, we're taught that in school, you don't really understand it perhaps until you have that, that opportunity and, uh, to vote. You know, I'm, uh, a beneficiary of a, a later amendment where the voting age was lowered from 21 years to 18 years, mm. and that was in 1972, and I was 18 in 1972, and I voted in that election, and I have never taken it for granted that I have the right to vote and the responsibility to vote as well. Yeah. Um, I, I heard on a previous occasion that uh, women especially would take their I Voted sticker and uh, take that to you know, the grave sites or memorial sites of the suffragists, ah, which, wonderful. Which, is, which is a nice, you know, full circle uh, gesture. Right? Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. And there were so many women nationwide and in Utah who were activists for the vote. Uh, I think we we sometimes think that about Utah in its present sense, but in the 19th century and early 20th century, feminism was very strong in the state, the territory, actually. The Woman's Exponent was a feminist newspaper. It was first edited in 1874 by a woman from Smithfield, Mm. Louisa Lula Green Richards, and we're proud that Cache County has the Utah's first woman journalist as well. But I was reading uh, in the history of Utah State recently about our home economics uh, program. This was 1935, 1935. And uh, the, the dean was saying, it is so important for young women to learn the domestic sciences. They are realizing they can't get by on charm alone. <laughs> and that it won't be a detriment to marriage if they know their domestic sciences and mm-hmm. the well-run household. These were the concerns, I guess, right? 
Absolutely, absolutely. But that that's a wonderful segue to to talk about Utah State's focus on the year of the woman. There's this wonderful uh, foundation of these historical events that we want to celebrate. But it was President Cockett's vision that we would look at women writ large in the university and uncover and recover the stories of women throughout the last 130 years of Aggie women in the classroom, in the labs, in the community. Yeah. Well, let's before we go to break, let's uh, outline some events here uh, coming up. So 2020 is here, the woman, but we're starting now. What uh, Explain that. Well, isn't it wonderful to take an entire year to celebrate? I yeah. mean, these are really mammoth celebrations, and people are going to see nationwide. Uh, every state has a centennial commission. There's a federal centennial commission for um, the uh, women's suffrage. In Utah, we have the most fabulous organization, Better Days 2020, that has an amazing website full of resources for teachers, for families. It has a county-by-county county history of suffrage in, in the state. I can't recommend that too highly. Yeah. Uh, I'll just put in a plug in for UPR. Utah Public Radio will be heavily involved with, with this. Uh, listen for some great programming uh, coming up. Uh, so there's a panel discussion. It'll be coming up on September 6th. She's Daring Mighty Things Summit. And uh, that be happening at the, uh, the, I think, the Huntsman School, right? Yes. Um, and then Celebrating Women Conference is on the September 21st. By the way, you can go to uh, usu.edu slash year of the woman and find all of these events. Wonderful website there. So Celebrating Women Conference, that's on September 21st. Um, a poet will be coming in, Danielle Dubrowski, um, with lecture and readings uh, that's hosted by Helicon West at the Logan Library, September 26th. Celebrating Suffrage Concert, American Festival Chorus and Orchestra on September 27th. So that should be a great event. Uh, then Shannon Ballum, the new Poet Laureate for Logan City, will be reading on September uh, 30th. October 9th, Be Outspoken, Suffrage Centennial Ride and Trivia Night. So uh, that's a bicycle event, right? Absolutely, and bicycles were crucial to women's freedom and to getting the vote. Uh, really, I didn't know that. Yes, I think Susan B. Anthony said at, at one point uh, that she felt that bicycles were the reason why women got the vote, because they gave them access to transportation and independence. Interesting. Yes. The whole the whole idea of the bicycles, um, it was another form of freedom. Um, yeah. And when we think back, it, it really freed women. And we saw the same thing with things like style of dress. Um, styles of dress changing and freeing women from some of the restraints. Yeah, things I wouldn't have thought about. Right. Yeah, uh, little things, which are big things. Well, right. Amelia Bloomer. So uh, she designed the split skirt, in essence, the bloomers, uh, so that women could ride bicycles. Yeah. And that was a fashion revolution. Hmm. Yeah, it was it was incredibly revolutionary for the time. Amelia Bloomer ran a newspaper, The Lily, in Seneca Falls, New York, back in the late 1840s, 1850s, and she publicized the Bloomer costume, pattern for the Bloomer costume there. Um, and it was like a shorter skirt over these sort of poofy-looking pants. Um, and some of the early suffragists who adopted the outfit were so ridiculed, they finally gave it up because they thought it was detracting from their, from their message. Um, but the styles eventually did change. Um, and it led to 
women being able to ride bicycles and, again, other freedoms. Hmm. Which, which were necessary uh, steps. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And I'll mention um, that uh, Nancy Hill's costume designer for Utah State University uh, will be hosting a fashion show uh, at least once, if not twice this year, depicting the clothing that women wore through the decades and really how constricting they were originally, you know, clear up until the 1920s, the flapper, which becomes very freeing and after women have the vote. Mm. That came after. Yes. Yeah, interesting. Well, let's take a break. We're talking about the Year of the Woman, so designated uh, 2020 and starting now at Utah State University. Uh, celebrating uh, three big anniversaries, the 150th anniversary of suffrage for Utah women, 100th anniversary of women's suffrage in the United States, and 55th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act. Many events uh, will be coming up, including uh, some great programming here at uh, Utah Public Radio. We have with us uh, Joyce Kincaid, Distinguished Professor of English at Utah State University, and Kathy Farron-Bullock, uh, who is Interim Department Head of Journalism and Communication at USU. More following this. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Intermountain Healthcare, a not-for-profit healthcare system with 23 hospitals and 170 medical clinics located throughout the Intermountain West. Intermountain Healthcare also offers managed care under the insurance brand Select Health. Information at intermountainhealthcare.org. And Logan Extermination, serving Cache Valley for over 45 years, offering year-round pest control, lawn, tree, and shrub maintenance. Information at loganextermination.net. UPR is everywhere you are, with classical music programming, news, and information. Statewide through 36 signals, worldwide on the web at upr.org, and through the new UPR app. UPR is only a push of a button away. I had retired. I was looking down the barrel of 65. I could hear this clinking sound in my mind, and I thought, is that my dentures in a glass, or is that a cocktail? on a patio in Boca Raton. Join us next time for more true stories told live. This week, stories about identity. That's the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. Saturday evening at 6 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Utah State University has declared 2020 the Year of the Woman, and those events are starting right now. Um, the first is on September 6th. She's Daring Mighty Things Summit, a panel discussion celebrating women conference on September 21st. Uh, poet Danielle Dubrowski is uh, doing a reading with a lecture September 26th as well, and uh, September 27th, celebrating suffrage concert with the American Festival Chorus and Orchestra. Uh, many events going on uh, throughout uh, throughout the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have with us uh, Joyce Kincaid, who is a distinguished professor of English at Utah State University, and Kathy Farron Bullock, uh, who is interim department head with journalism and communication at USU. Uh, and I think both of you are involved in uh, on the committee. Are you? With these events? Yes, absolutely. I'm uh, co-chairing with Sidney Peterson, who uh, is the secretary to the Board of Trustees, uh, the Year of the Woman. And then we're joined by a steering committee that includes President Cockett uh, and other key members of the administration. And then we have five working groups that are looking at academic involvement, student involvement, special events, outreach to all of the statewide campuses that we have and uh, our marketing and communication. Uh, 
you mentioned President Cockett a couple of times. Uh, it is remarkable. We're in a remarkable moment right now. I think five or six uh, institutions of higher learning in Utah are headed up right now by women. Right. That's a wonderful change in, in the, the data. Uh, so what does that do? You think I, I can tell you my perspective. I, I look. I recently taught a connections class, incoming freshmen. Um, it was interesting to look at those young women when President Cockett comes out. It's a woman, right? And so I, I don't know if I'm projecting what they're thinking, but I could imagine they're thinking, "Oh, this is maybe something I could do." I think it definitely sends that kind of a message yeah. about um, what doors are open to women today. Um, and I think the fact that we have so many women right now in these kinds of top positions in universities um, sends a message that, hey, maybe this is becoming more the norm. This is not some anomaly. This is not something so, you know, that's going to be so unusual. This is going to become part of the norm. Uh, and I guess uh, maybe uh, would there be different perspectives? You know, I don't want to lean too heavily on differences between men and women, but a <laughs> uh, different perspective brought by a woman to that position. Well, certainly. I, I think mm -hmm. there uh, are definitely different perspectives, different leadership styles, perhaps. I mean, uh, what we want to, to think about is how we are empowering girls and also young women to be leaders. Utah, unfortunately, has been ranked last in the nation for status of women. And so these are important changes for us to, to make as a state and as an institution to show women in leadership positions. Well, what are the factors there in that low ranking? I imagine maybe wages uh, well, would be one of them? Well, certainly wages uh, would be one of them, but that's a nationwide hmm. concern ah, as, mm -hmm. as, as well. Women make 75, 75 cents on the dollar to men. Uh, when we were doing our historical timeline uh, for Utah State University and women, there was uh, a period where nationwide it was 58 cents on the dollar. So advances have been made, but there's still a lot of room for equity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I want to get back into some history. I'll do it this way. Uh, Currently, you have received, uh, Joyce Kincaid, the, the, the following question, from which I distance myself. Don't call me. Um, what about Year of the Man? Well, certainly, uh, I think that's a, a legitimate question about Year of. And, and I should do a little um, background about the Year of theme. Uh, Utah State has celebrated in the past Year of Water, Year of the Arts, and now it's Year of the Woman. And in many regards, all three of them are about what we take for granted. Okay? Everyday uh, people, activities that, that we don't really see anymore. Uh, the Year of the Woman is based on voting rights. Okay? Women being enfranchised. One of the answers to why not Year of the Man is that every 4th of July, we celebrate men's right to votes. I mean, a war was fought in this country for men to be represented. Of course, in 1776, who got to vote? It was white men who had land, who had property. And so it, even there, it took more development to open up voting rights. But still, it was over a 100 years after our country was founded that women universally had the right to vote. 
And this this is incremental, right? Kathy Byrne Bullock. Uh, yes, it comes in little little bits and pieces, um, little steps. Um, a Married Women's Property Act um, back in you know the 1800s sets a little bit of a step, um, and maybe one state gives women um, certain voting rights, partial voting rights, or even full voting rights. Um, that sets a little step. It's it's one thing building on the next, and again, I think it's things that were intertwined. Um, you know, everything tied in with uh, the abolition of slavery and the Civil War and then coming back after that and saying, you know, yes, we still have work to do. So, yeah, it's step by step, I think. It's gone on for, for decades, really, for a couple of centuries. Mm. By the way, you were telling me you have a personal connection to Seneca Falls? I do. My family's farm, I grew up in the Finger Lakes region of New York State. Um, my family's farm is about a half an hour drive from Seneca Falls. And um, when I was doing some research in preparation for this year's Benyon Teachers Workshop, um, I visited Seneca Falls, um, the Women's Rights National Historical Park there, and there are some, some also some very fine archives in central New York with women's suffrage materials. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. Uh, there, by the way, on this, uh, this uh, website, Year of the Woman for USU, there's a timeline, a historical timeline. Interesting. And a lot of this I hadn't known. Uh, first vote in Utah is cast by Sarah Young. Yes, Seraph Young is... 1870. 1870. She is Brigham Young's niece. Okay, Seraph Young. And she got to the polls early because she was a working woman. Mm. She was a school teacher. And so she needed to get there before she taught her classes. Mm -hmm. By the way, uh, historically, we've understood that Wyoming was first to vote. Absolutely. Uh, Wyoming did enfranchise women with the vote first. However, Utah cleverly, quickly got a, a, an election uh, organized so that women actually went to the polls before Wyoming women did. Mm-hmm. And so that's why the special license plate that Utah has uh, just put out says, first to vote. Uh, let's see, the Edmunds-Tucker Act, you, you mentioned this was about polygamy, but it, uh, in effect, was disenfranchising women again. Yes, again. And and you might ask, you know, why Utah, Wyoming, Colorado? Uh, there was um, talk in the United States Congress of giving women the vote, but they said, let's try it out in the territories first, where it's more of a low risk. But it wound up that the West led the way in terms of women's right to vote. And so there are wonderful graphics about the West, uh, like with a Columbia figure. uh, And then the poor Eastern women are still in darkness because they don't Mm. have the vote. Right. I want to turn to you, Kathy Bullock. Um, uh, I mean, it's, it's not controversial now, right? The right uh, to vote. The right to vote for women, right? Hopefully it's not controversial. We, uh, what were the arguments against? Oh, back in the day, the arguments were that um, women didn't want to vote. Um, even women were saying, well, I have uh, power over my own home. I raise my children. That's really all I need to do. There was a big kind of a cultural idea that women's sphere was in the home. 
um, and that if women were, were in the home, they were actually wielding even more power um, because they were raising the children, you know, making sure people grew up with good moral principles, and that was shaping the next generation of male voters. Um, the idea that the polls were kind of dark and dangerous places, and they were a little rough and tumble, and that was no place for a woman. So those were some of the arguments that were used um, against women voting. Mm. Um, there were wonderful, wonderful quotes in the newspapers at the time where they were saying, my gosh, our women don't don't care about voting. Our women are going to be mothers and virgins and, you know, um, wives and not women. So, yes, we don't need to vote. And women were leading the anti-suffragist. Yes, in some cases that that's the mm-hmm. case. Yes, it was. And uh, I have to say, on the other side of it, though, there were also men who were helping to lead the suffrage mm-hmm. uh, movement yeah. as well. So it kind of cut both ways. You mentioned earlier that uh, there, there were interconnections between the suffrage suffrage movement and the abolitionist movement, right? Temperance movement, right? A lot of the folks who were working on behalf of suffrage were also working on behalf of the abol- abolition of slavery. Some of them were also heavily involved with the temperance movement. With the temperance movement, the idea was that you know um, if women gained the right to vote, they would they would um, vote down demon rum and make sure that that you know people didn't have access to this and and so on and with the the whole abolition and suffrage movement was really that was a really complex one, um, and um, sometimes they were working for all those rights together for abolition of slavery, working for suffrage for women and for people of color. Um, came a point at which um, you know we enfranchised. Um, black American men, freed, you know, freed men and so on. And women did not get the right to vote. There was sort of a split over that. Some said, no, we have to hold out until everybody gets the right to vote. Others said, no, let's get what what rights we can. Then we'll move on to the next right. Um, So that was really intertwined and really complex. And after the Civil War, there was some push in the South um, for the right to vote for women because it was some people felt, well, that will sort of, um, the women will then vote the way they're white husbands do. Um, the white women's vote will, they, and that will sort of overpower the, the new um, black American vote. Hmm. So really intertwined in some really interesting, complex, and sometimes disturbing ways. Yeah. Uh, you study media and the suffrage, right? Yeah, yes. There were, yeah, some really interesting um, suffrage publications um, were edited by women. Um, the Lily, with we said already, with Amelia Bloomer, started as a, te- as a temperance publication um, and eventually moved on to other um, women's rights issues, particularly voting after Elizabeth Cady Stanton got involved with it, for example. Um, the Exponent, um, the Women's Exponent here in Utah, as Joyce already said, feminist publication published over several decades into the 19. Very important voice for women, all kinds of of rights. Um, The Revolution, there were a number of publications for and by women. Hmm. Um, And and very necessary. Uh, By the way, uh, apropos of this, on the website here, purple, white, and gold were were the colors of the suffrage movement, apparently. Absolutely. And so uh, they chose those colors deliberately. They were symbolic. The gold actually resulted from Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton visiting Kansas, which has the sunflower as the state flower. And Kansas suffragists were wearing gold, and they thought that was a great color. They added white for purity and purple for loyalty and nobility. And the suffragists felt that it was very important to make a 
uh, excellent presentation of themselves in terms of fashion, that they had to be highly regarded in the way they looked. They had to be intelligent and articulate. There was a lot of symbolism involved in all of this. And the colors, um, the, the gold, um, that would be gold G for give, white, the W for women, and um, the purple, violet, give women the vote. And in Britain, it was green, violet, and white, again, for give women the vote. Um, as, as you moved through, you would see the sunflower used as a symbol for women's suffrage. So there was a lot of symbolism connected with all this. Hmm. Um, let's take another break. Um, we'll come back uh, with our final segment. Um, just to remind you that uh, 2020 has been designated as Year of the Woman for Utah State University. And the events uh, start right now. Uh, September 6th, She's Daring Mighty Things Summit. Uh, that's a panel discussion on September 21st, Celebrating Women Conference. Uh, then a poet, Danielle Dubrowski, will be giving a lecture and readings uh, September 26th as well. September 27th, it's a concert from the American Festival Chorus and Orchestra Celebrating Suffrage Concert. Shannon Ballum gives a reading. She's the new uh, Poet Laureate for City of Logan on the 30th. And uh, then Be Outspoken, Suffrage Centennial Ride and Trivia Night, October 9th. October 10th, Poets Star Colbrick and Sonny Wilkinson. All of that you can find at uh, USU's Year of the Woman uh, webpage. And uh, UPR will be uh, doing a bunch of uh, wonderful programming as well for this. I uh, have with me uh, Kathy Fern Bullock, who is uh, Interim Department Head with the uh, Journalism and Communication Department at USU. And uh, Joyce Kincaid is a uh, Distinguished Professor of English at uh, USU. More following this break. On the next On Being, acoustic ecologist Gordon Hempton. Often I actually hike with another person. And often the hike in is a chattery experience coming from urban lives, etc. But the hike out is hardly talking at all. Quiet is quieting. I'm Krista Tippett. Please join us. Saturday morning at 5 on Utah Public Radio. To understand the human brain. How can patterns of electrical pulses passing between cells be thought to figure out what makes us human why when all that happens in this circuit does it feel like something might require unconventional methods am i really gonna throw a human brain into a blender i'm guy raj the unknown brain that's next time on the ted radio hour from npr sunday afternoon at two on utah public radio Programming on Utah Public Radio is brought to you in part by our members and Intermountain Healthcare, a not-for-profit healthcare system with 23 hospitals and 170 medical clinics located throughout the Intermountain West. Intermountain Healthcare also offers managed care under the insurance brand Select Health. Information at intermountainhealthcare.org. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We've been uh, talking about some important history, women's suffrage movement, also the Voting Rights Act, and uh, the vote for Utah women. All three of those events uh, are uh, coming up on anniversaries, and uh, Utah State University is celebrating those. They've designated 2020 as the Year of the Woman, and those events are starting right now. You can find those at usu.edu slash yearofthewoman. Uh, first one coming up, she's Daring Mighty Things Summit on September uh, 6th, a Celebrating Women Conference on September 21st, a Poets coming in on the 26th, uh, 
And um, let's see, celebrating a suffrage concert, American Festival Chorus and Orchestra on the 27th. Joyce Kincaid, there are some events apparently in the spring as well. Absolutely. One of the uh, signature events will be the Tanner Symposium on Voting Rights 1870, 1920, 1965, and, and 2020. That's being led by our uh, department head in history, Tammy Proctor, and another professor in history, Sue Grizel, along with a, a large group of women from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. That two-day conference will bring in national speakers uh, to talk about voting rights. Uh, We will end on Friday evening, March 20th, at Utah Theater downtown with premiere of some documentaries from the Unladylike series. And one of those is about Dr. Martha Hughes Cannon, the first woman state senator uh, in Utah and, in fact, in the nation. And her statue is going to be installed in Washington, D.C., in in the National Statuary Hall, August 20th of this next year. In fact, I want to compliment the Utah Theater. um, March is Women's History Month, and they will have a women's film festival all month. Oh, that'd be wonderful. Yeah. I wanted to ask about that, and this this gives me a, a hook. Uh, so, unladylike. Um, there's there's a whole can of worms there. Um, so, uh, continually, I think, and, con- and continuing to today, um, culture, um, I think, is you know, in certain, certain forces in culture try to impose on women, especially you know, young women coming up. Uh, this is ladylike behavior, and this is not right. This is circumscribed. This is good behavior, and this is bad behavior. Um, and I, I don't know if you come up against that, and especially as you interact with your your young students. Somebody want to tackle that? <laughs> this is you know it's, it's bound up in this history. You know, yeah, it is. It is bound up in this history, and I yes, I think we do still see that. Um, I think we see expectations on the part of young women as well as on the part of young men. Um, I think we are constantly working with that, just trying to um, sort of let people see that they have expanded opportunities and that some of these ideas about what is ladylike or unladylike are, you know, are, you know, irrelevant. I think the other piece of that um, is we also in the media are always struggling with what's the media's impact Mm -hmm. on how, how we see ourselves um, on our cultural expectations and so on. There's been a lot of work done on ways in which media shape um, how we see ourselves and the world around us. So we're always sort of working on that. There's a lot of work yet to be done. Mm-hmm. Is there progress, do you think? Are there changes, positive changes, these these cultural expectations, especially on the young women? Well, Tom, I've been at Utah State University since 1982, and there are definite changes. When I first came, you could count the number of full professors on one hand of women. Okay. And so that's been an issue all along about um, women's status and and the like. Uh, and so as I've moved in administrative and leadership roles, I've I've sometimes found myself kind of caught between two expectations of being ladylike, but also being a leader. Uh, that, and I think that's that's a, a national conversation we're having right now. Certainly, with the presidential election coming up, we're seeing uh, women candidates who are are caught on the the cusp of that as well. 
I think that's one yeah. more reason why it's so important to have something like Year of the Woman, so that we maybe bring some of these ideas out into the open and have a chance to discuss them. Yeah. Um, and again, it's it makes it that much more important to have um, women in faculty, in administration, uh, women as a president of Utah State University. It's, you know, just seeing women in those roles sends a very powerful message, I think. Yeah. You, you mentioned the presidential candidates, and, um, you know, it, it's great that we have more women running for president, right, and uh, in offices, more women in Congress than ever before. But uh, I, I do think there's a double standard in terms of, you know, uh, uh, the way a, a woman candidate says something versus the man candidate, the woman is going to be judged differently. I think that uh, social scientists, you know, doing the research have have found that's exactly the case. There is a double standard, and it's it's a harder road to hoe for women. Uh, but thank goodness they're out there and putting themselves forward. I'm so impressed with organizations like Real Women Run mm-hmm. okay, that are getting more women into um, – uh, nominations for elected office. That's an important um, move to make. Not always going to be successful, but we need to see more faces out there, more representation. Hmm. It's not just politics. I'm, I'm remembering uh, the, our convocations recently for Connections. Uh, Paige Peterson, uh, justice on the uh, Utah Supreme Court, came and spoke. And she told uh, she told a story from her life where she was um, in front of, she was a prosecutor in New York. She's in front of a jury, and she's getting a little heated. And she could tell she's losing the jury. And she said her male colleague had just been in front of that jury with the with the same amount of, uh, I guess, passion. And the jury was right along there with him. So she expressed frustration, but she said, "If I'm going to win this jury, I got to, because I'm a woman. Apparently, I got to dial it back, right? So a double standard, right?" Right, yeah. exactly. Um, I'm interested in this, uh, another thing on this timeline. November 14th, 1917, Night of Terror. 33 suffragists from the National Women's Party arrested for protesting outside the White House are brutally beaten and tortured uh, at the uh, uh, workhouse, a prison in northern uh, Virginia. This is some history I hadn't known. It's interesting to, to bring this forward. Right. I don't think that, um, again, looking back at this from the vantage of 2019, we sometimes forget that this was, in, in some cases, a violent movement. Um, peaceful protests. Um, women would be would be thrown in jail. Um, some of the women went on hunger strikes, um, and they tried to force feed them, which I imagine is a pretty awful thing to go through. Um, and in, in some ways, they, that became sort of a badge of honor. If you had been imprisoned, if you had been, if they had tried to force feed you, um, this became a little bit of a badge of honor um, among some of the suffragists. So, yeah, there were periods during this when um, uh, peaceful protests were met with, with violence. Mm. Well, I want to mention in particular Alice Paul. And that's a name we don't know as readily as we know Susan B. Anthony. Right. But Alice Paul was absolutely key to winning the vote. She, she was heading up the National Women's Party. And she was one of those women who was force-fed. Uh, there is a fabulous film, Iron Jawed Angels, and Hilary Swank plays Alice Paul. And it's a, it's a great introduction to that whole period. Iron Jawed Angels. Yes. That's intriguing. Um, it's, uh, I'm seeing here some, <laughs> some of these things, uh, maybe on the lighter side, women's basketball team of 1898. 
and they're not wearing what you what the women's basketball team at USU would be wearing today. No, it's uh, many people don't know that our very first basketball team at Utah, and it was Agricultural College then, of course, was a women's team. And they had a match with the local Brigham Young College, okay, and that was then located in downtown Logan, in 1903 that they won. So the women's basketball team uh, was the first one at Utah State. Hmm. Uh, the Cirrhosis Society. Interesting. So Interesting. It, for any alumni who are Alpha Chi Omega Sorority Sisters, that started as the Cirrhosis Society. It's a literary club, and um, Utah State had many clubs in its early days. One of my favorite one is the Inferion Club, which was devoted to current issues. And our graduate of 1921, Mignon Barker Richmond, was a member of that exclusive club. She is the first African-American to graduate from a college in Utah. And that was at uh, USU? Absolutely. Yeah. Now, you're uh, apparently you're pairing uh, then and now. So you, you've paired Domino and Barker Richmond with, uh, with Cree Taylor. Ex- exactly. Cree Taylor is a, a current student. She's a graduate student in the master's program at, in the Department of English. And she was also an outstanding athlete, uh, a track, track and field athlete while she was an undergraduate here. And so we've, we're pairing Mignon Barker Richmond then and Cree Taylor now. The story that's on the website is a pairing of our very first student to enroll at the Agricultural College, and that was Vinla Burnson. 1890, and she was a very well-known pianist in Logan in later life. And she's being paired with Dr. Stephanie Rhodes Russell, who also studied piano at Utah State University, graduated in 2006. Uh, She's now Dr. Rhodes Russell, and she's a well-known conductor. Uh, And she is an associate conductor for the Grand Teton Music Festival, but she's well-regarded internationally for her knowledge of the Russian literature. Hmm. Uh, another uh, distinguished uh, alumna in the world of arts, Tamara Mumford, so is, sings at the Metropolitan Opera. Exactly, yes. Well, we have a fabulous music program, yeah. and it's not surprising that our graduates have gone on to do very well there. Uh, Michael Chipman, for example, is in Los Angeles, an uh, excellent singer, uh, and we're just very proud of these these folks. Uh, Michael Chipman used to work here. I'll, I'll put in a plug for UPR. Yeah. Um, and I'm thinking also about Linda Muggleston, who's yes. on Broadway. Yes. And she's in My Fair Lady right now. Uh, we, we have an astronaut, woman astronaut in our in our alumni uh, group, right? Mary Cleave, and we don't want to forget our current. Uh, International Space Shuttle scientist, Julie Robinson. Hmm. And she's going to be here in the spring visiting the honors program. Yeah. Just have a few minutes left uh, in the program. Uh, anything you'd like to especially emphasize about Year of the 
the Earth to Women. Well, I want to mention that this uh, this celebration is not only about Utah State, but about the community as well. And so I mentioned the Better Days 2020, the uh, statewide celebration, but the city of Logan, uh, under Mayor Holly Dane's leadership, has established its own cash, cash celebration of suffrage. And they're doing remarkable work, including a wonderful exhibit of three voting booths representing the three significant anniversaries designed by Gail Griswold. And those exhibits are going to be in every school in Box Elder and Cache counties. And I love the educational uh, element of, of what they're doing there. So it's, it's a fabulous synergy uh, with uh, the university and the city. And I believe UPR is involved in that project uh, as well. Uh, Kathy Fern Bullock, uh, just a, a minute or two left. What's What would you like especially to emphasize? Well, I'd like to reiterate, reiterate what Joyce just said. I think everybody um, can be involved in the Year of the Woman, whether you're connected with Utah State or not. I think there are going to be lots of opportunities to do that. And as we're looking back at these suffrage anniversaries, I guess I'd just say this is a prime opportunity now to be to be making sure we're exercising our right to vote, all of us, men, women, um, and um, sort of thinking about some of the, the current issues today and what we might be doing with those. So I just say, everybody, remember remember our suffrage anniversaries and make sure you're exercising that right. Well, we'll go uh, next uh, to a bread and butter segment. Um, we have been uh, talking with Kathy Fern Bullock, who is uh, Interim Department Head, Journalism and Communication Department. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. And Joyce Kincaid, who's Distinguished Professor of English at USU. Thanks. Oh, it's a pleasure. This will be interesting, the Year of the Woman. A lot of, lot of uh, great things uh, coming up. You can find that at usu.edu slash Year of the Woman. And we thank you for listening to Access Utah. Next up is Bread and Butter, a culinary chronicle with Jen Ashton. When have you been thirsty? Really thirsty. We're talking cotton dry mouth, weak in the knees, with visions of bubbling streams and fountains dancing in your head. I've only been so parched once in my life. The experience keeps me forever grateful for the tasteless and colorless, yet vibrant, life-sustaining wonder that is water. I was a teenager, joining my uncle and cousins for the capstone event of our Summer of Trails. We were hiking King's Peak, the tallest mountain in Utah that reaches 13,528 feet above sea level. I had packed hiking essentials, including bottled water, enough, I thought, for the day of switchbacks and elevation gain. Perhaps two-thirds of the way into our ascent, however, my canteen already felt too light, and I was withering. We stopped to rest along a smooth, rocky outcrop. My young cousin looked at me. I'm thirsty, he said. Mm-hmm, I responded. His eager eyes shifted to my canteen hanging on the side of my backpack. My eyes stayed locked on him. Can I... His voice trailed off. Inside, I heaved a sigh and felt a grumble deep in my gut. Just as quickly, I chided myself for being selfish He's just a freckle-faced kid who wants a sip of water. Rationing the rest should see me through the end. Besides, I reasoned, it's only a sip, and my uncle has an emergency water purifier. I unscrewed the top, 
and handed him my canteen. I still remember the way he lifted the container and threw his head back, holding the rim just above his lips. Then he guzzled. I felt my temperature rise with each swallow and watched as small rivulets of water escaped the corners of his mouth trickling down his cheeks. Finally, he stood and handed me the canteen with water dripping from his chin. It was nearly empty. We continued on our hike, reaching the summit. However, upon the return, I suddenly found myself alone with an empty canteen. Somehow I had broken off from the group, but I continued on what I thought was the correct trail. Three hours later, with scratches from mountain scrub oak, I finally stumbled across the trailhead, rejoining my family. I think I was so dehydrated and embarrassed, my brain struggled to catch up. Instead of demanding a drink, I slumped into the back of the minivan and stared out the window as we drove home. Water beckoned to me from the passing scenery, teasing me as it spouted from sprinklers and rambled along the ditch. I imagined crawling into the gas station to drink right from the bathroom faucet. I needed water. Not syrupy soda or juice, just pure, fresh hydrogen and oxygen molecules combined in just the right way. I recall that thirsty day on King's Peak with gratitude. In fact, my kids and I have a tradition of listing things we're thankful for when we leave our driveway. This morning I said, I'm grateful for clean water right at our fingertips. You said that yesterday, they moaned. That's right, yesterday and every day. This is Jen Ashton for Bread and Butter. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM Logan. Also heard online at UPR.org. Wow.